Welcome to The Hut Near the Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. In Ireland, we call our mothers Mammy or Mam. The bond with our Mammy is unbreakable. Indeed, it is one of the most amazing gifts of life. In this episode, we explore this bond through the lens of emigration and adoption in 19th and 20th century Ireland. Sheila begins by telling us about her own experience of motherhood and about the bond she formed with her six children. We then look at the philosophical literature and see that this powerful bond is formed in gestation when both mother and baby are most exposed to the core of one another's subjectivity. From the accounts of adoption and emigration, we see how traumatic an experience the separation of mother and child was. And yet, we also see the power and joy of this bond in cases where both parties were reunited. In the final part, we draw on the words of the Irish philosopher and poet, John O'Donoghue, to impart some wisdom and a blessing from others. Folks, before we begin this episode, we need to ask you for a favour. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please do give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This will make the podcast available to more people and it will help it grow. Thanks. Sheila, how are your five calves doing? They're doing great, James. Uh, I'm still feeding them morning and evening and thoroughly enjoying it. Something else I have been doing is um, picking a lot of blackcurrants. This year, it was an amazing year for blackcurrants and they were in abundance on the hedge. And I couldn't see them go to waste. And as tedious as it is to pick them, I managed to pick quite a few. I made a lot of blackcurrant jam and the taste is delicious. And as well as that, I know there's lots of nutrition in blackcurrant jam, a lot of vitamin C. And I hope that that will help us get over the winter. I also shared a number of the pots of jam I made with my friends. So I like sharing as well. Very good. Do you think there's a bit of wisdom in the the vitamin C and all the, the, the nutritious benefits of the blackcurrants? Well, I think there probably is a bit of wisdom. But look, I mean, one thing I always grew up with, waste not, want not. And I couldn't see the blackcurrants just go to waste, number one. And a second tradition that I think is very apt in the farming community, and that is uh, the ability to share out the fruits of the earth. And I think that that's ingrained in me somewhere there. So from that perspective, I love sharing out uh, the jam I have made as well. James, tell me, how have you been getting on? Yeah, I've been good. I'm really busy, um, but I like being busy. Uh, The outside observer might say my life is a bit boring at the moment, but um, I'm, I'm quite happy to be in this situation I'm in in terms of productivity and work so I'm good I'm fine and I believe we're talking about motherhood this week and I was thinking about that and I was thinking I'm not probably not the best qualified person to talk about motherhood because I'm not a mother number one and number two I'll never be a mother so but I do think you are far more qualified than I am and particularly seeing that at one point in your life you had six children under the age of eight which 
to me sounds like utter lunacy but <laughs> thanks <laughs> but, uh, james <laughs> <laughs> but no 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 i, I no I, I, st- I think it's an amazing achievement so can you tell me what is motherhood for you sheila yes james i can well first of all i believe motherhood is several things for me it's first of all very challenging it's also very rewarding and even if i could just take you through the time when the baby is in the womb, it's a lovely feeling to think that you're giving life to a new baby. Uh, also, then the birth obviously is really brilliant as well in that you meet the baby for the first time and you're thinking about how that baby is vis-a-vis how you had imagined the baby. So I think that, that that's a lovely experience as well. And then obviously with motherhood comes a lot of responsibility. Because I believe you are responsible for the physical and emotional well-being of that child. And obviously it's all anyone can do is their best. And you do your best to give that child the best start you can in life. And I would have done my best. Sometimes I wasn't so good. uh, But for the most part, I tried hard to be the best I could be. So to me, that's really the essence of motherhood. Very good. And I suppose you had quite a number of children, particularly in the contemporary times, it would be considered a very large family. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your experience of that? Yeah, I can. What, what's it, what's it, what John Lennon says? Well, John Les- Lennon said something like this. Gee, Lord, you know, it ain't easy. You know how hard it can be the way things are going, they're going to crucify me. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I genuinely thought they were going to crucify me. Like, obviously, that's only paraphrased. I'm not 100% sure of the quote, but (laughs) I think it was apt enough for me. But what was my experience? Look, I believe that I was tested to my limits as a mother. And obviously, I... Because I had six children under eight, that was part of testing me to my limits, because the more children you have, the more you have to divide yourself. And obviously, they all have various needs at various stages. And to be honest, that that was part of the reason I was tested to my limits. I also feel that my experience of motherhood was that it almost captured in me every emotion that was possible. Okay being scared, being overjoyed, being overpowered, being exhausted, um, terrified. Sometimes you'd be terrified when maybe you had a sick baby with a high temperature and you were wondering, uh, was the child going to be all right? And obviously every case is different. So you can't write the manual for anyone. You just sometimes have to go with your gut feeling or your maternal instinct and know when to go to the doctor and know when not to go. So in many ways, it was juggling a lot of of acts together. And like the one thing about it, I found as a result of having a large family and working outside the home and it presented a number of different challenges. But then I found as the children grew up and went their separate ways that in many ways I had been so challenged as a mother that I was able to to replicate being challenged in other areas of my life. And that was good for me because in many ways I wouldn't go back from a challenge. I like being challenged and I believe because I had six children under eight and because I managed to keep afloat 
well, then I believe that you can replicate that experience in other areas of your life as well. The other thing, James, that I experienced was the bond between a mother and child for me was so intense that I knew that whatever I had to do, I had to do. And I was prepared to do it. Whereas I believe if it was any other job for talk's sake and you had the same level of responsibility and the same scary experiences that you might have in motherhood that you'd almost walk away from it. But somehow or another, that bond keeps you inextricably linked to your child and there's no walking away from it for me anyway. And I I saw this beautiful quote that really resonated with me and it's by Vicky uh, Reese. And the quote is, the love and bond between a mother and her child begins the very moment she knows they are on the way to her. And in many ways, I believe that that has been my experience, that I have felt that intense bond. Sometimes even before they were born, I could feel that bond. So I'm very interested in learning a bit more about that bond and why it's so intense in mothers. Have you come across anything uh, about that bonding? The, the simple answer and obviously the most obvious answer is that a child spends nine months of gestation in its mother's womb prior to its release into the world. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that obviously that's significantly different to any other relationship you're ever going to have. But how do we understand that relationship is the question. And look, I think to put it in simple terms, there's this range of research and literature on this particular topic. We can understand it in this way that at our most fundamental level, we experience others through our bodies, right? And that sounds a bit obvious as well. But actually, the way our understanding of others has been conceptualized is very much this cognitive approach whereby our minds are locked behind some observable body behavior. They're locked away in our heads. And therefore, if our minds are locked away in our heads, it means the only direct access we have, the only mind we have direct access to is our own. And therefore, your mind is locked away in behind your head and I have no direct access to that so in other words so that means I have to use either language or inf- inferential processes but actually no like the reality of it is is that we have there's more basic structures for understanding other people than just thinking about it or talking about it and that's our bodies and I don't mean just body language in the sense that I see you moving in a particular way or looking a particular way and then from that I'm able to tell no it's even more fundamental than that it's this feeling i can literally i can feel your experiences so i for example i could see that you're angry and that will precipitate in me a corresponding feeling so for example i might get angry as well or i might be fearful Uh, but the point is it doesn't matter what bodily resonance so we could call this bodily resonance i feel it i feel fear or i feel anger you know and we could say that we, it doesn't matter which it, what kind of bodily resonance one feels. The point is, is that actually that bodily resonance, the feeling we have, allows us to understand the experience of the other. It allows us to understand that the other is angry. We don't need any cognitive processes for that. We don't need to infer it. It's rather, it's intuitive at this most basic level. So, to bring that back to this account of 
fetal uh, development in gestation and the bond that develops between us. Obviously, emotion and effect or affectivity is the term that's used is central to the bond that develops between the mother and the fetus. And at the early state, in the very early stages of pregnancy, and this is according to Jane Limer, she's an Australian philosopher. Uh, she says that the fetus is in this stage, this stage of syncretism or the syncretic stage of development, whereby they don't have the ability to be able to differentiate between themselves and their mother or their gestational mother. And so what happens is, is that they experience, if you have, if you don't have the ability to be able to distinguish between your emotion and the emotion of another or your experience and the experience of another then you just experience everything as one so they experience at the most intense level their mother's being their mother's subjectivity so evidently that is going to leave a significant mark on and it's going to form bonds at the deepest level of our being of who we are and our understanding and so from that point then what happens is is that we through this the child develops in the syncretic stage and in this syncretic stage the mother imprints what we call the body schema the body schema effectively is the way that we organize our motor and spatial awareness in a non-cognitive way so basically it's our it's the thing that allows us to do stuff without thinking about it cycle a bike play a game of hurling, play a game of football, play a musical instrument. These are all things that very often you'll see that these people have who have significant amount of training that they don't have to think about. But even when we get up in the morning, when we go to the bathroom, when we do whatever we do, we don't have to think about these things necessarily. And that's our body schema that allows us to do that. But also our body schema allows us to understand other people. It's the fundamental connection between you and I, my body schema and your body schema. So what happens in gestation is that the mother imprints her body schema onto her fetus and that's happening because her body schema has to change to adapt and accommodate the fetus. And so this is having a two-way effect in her body schema changing and adapting to this new space that has opened up inside of her. She then actually imprints that onto the fetus until a point in the pregnancy where the fetus actually develops a functioning body schema itself. And there's empirical evidence that shows us that the fetus can move, moves in smoother, more, uh, you know, you could almost say the word planned perhaps suggests some kind of higher level cognitive function. And we're, we're not suggesting that this is a very basic level of what we would call intentionality, that the, that the, 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 the fetus has it's this bodily intentionality that it's moving in a particular way and it's reacting to the movements that are happening happening in the uterus and different things like that so what we're seeing is that the relationship between the fetus and the mother changes to this relationship of from a one-way relationship where the, the body scheme has been imprinted onto the fetus where now it's a relationship that's communicative and transformative for both in the sense that the body, the, the infant's body schema now starts to mould and shape in relation to the, the relationship it has with the mother. And in any relationship we have, in any kind of interaction we have with other people, particularly in close relationships, phenomenologists would say that we're trying to find some kind of synchronicity because it feels good to be in synchronicity with someone when you move your bodies in a particular way. You know, when you have a cuddle, when I have a cuddle with my girlfriend, uh, there's a synchronicity there and it feels good to have a cuddle so it's the same kind of thing that feeling of 
uh, that positive self experience you have and so basically then what's happening is is this at this syncretic stage the fetus experiences the effective life or the emotional life of the mother so intensely that that forms a a very deep bond and then what happens is is in the interactions that they have in gestation then this sediments and and builds upon that initial experience that the fetus has had you know in a previous episode i mentioned that music can reach down into parts of our being that language will never get to and speak to us in ways that language never can and i think it's that most deepest furthest reaches of who we are of our subjectivity of our being that that's where our relationship with our mother resides because they are the first and most fundamental relationship we will ever have it's not only that there's this incredible bond between a mother and 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 her pre-infant it's it also that this relationship is is constitute constitutional in the sense that it, it forms the basic structures for subjectivity so our social selves our social selves, who we will become, our basic, the basic structures for that are put in place in gestation. And also our relationships with other people outside of gestation that aren't our mothers, that, these, that this relationship forms all of that. So our relationship with our mother is the first and most fundamental relationship we will ever have. So if we understand the bond in that sense, there isn't any relationship like that. So of course the bond between a mother and child is... It's an exceptional bond because the circumstances under which it arises are exceptional. It's brilliant. That's a brilliant explanation of that. And you really have made it very clear in quite simple language. And I'd say it's quite a complex subject. But thank you for that, James. And what's striking me is that it's just in many ways nature providing for the ongoing development of of human beings in the sense that if we didn't feel that bond even when the child was born or or the intensity of the bond between a parent and a child well then we might be neglectful of them for example Mm. but because the way nature is structured and because all of this that we probably didn't know before is, is happening Uh, first of all as the one-way relationship and then as the two-way relationship that it's it's almost evolving and not alone is it evolving but as a mother it's extremely hard to sever that relationship Mm. well it's interesting because you're talking about the the sense of sacrifice you've made as a mother I, i think that's what i'm getting from you there is that correct well, it's just that basically, I I think mothers generally would tend to put their children first, yes. and I I see that as a natural response. Uh, but if if that be the intense um, bond wasn't there, perhaps we wouldn't uh, put our children first. Indeed, indeed, and uh, yes, no, it's very interesting, and I'm fascinated by that particular relationship and it's probably important here to make a distinction between the biological and the social you know the biological is your genetic makeup and what you inherit from your forebears and obviously your biological mother is gives you 50 percent of your dna but i'm like in terms of your social in terms of the social aspects of who you are initially you inherit all of that from your mother according to this of course particular approach yeah. to understanding so our social selves 
and the relationships, our ability to be social beings are formed in that fundamental relationship we have with our mother. And so it is really a special relationship. I'll tell you two stories in particular that I think will exemplify what you have told me. First of all, I my last pregnancy was a twin pregnancy and at the same time there was an aunt who I was really close to was dying and I remember going into the nursing home on the evening that she died and I sat with her, I was there with her alone and I noticed her pulse was weakening. Now, as I'm not a medical person, I didn't know too much, but I did ask the nurse and I asked her then if I could be left alone with her and I just held her hand. But the process took about two to three hours and I sat with her and I watched the life fade out of her body. But at the same time, I noticed that the unborn life in me that night was so evident in the sense that I never felt such strong movement before or since. So effectively, it's almost like what you're talking about, the body schema. And somehow or another now, having learned what I learned from you tonight, it was almost like the two fetuses in my body were picking up what I was experiencing and they were reacting in a particular way. Mm -hmm. It was something almost of contrast that one person was dying and the unborn life was letting me know that they were really there. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. indeed, indeed. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So I I think now that's interesting and I would never have thought of that had you not told me about the body schema tonight, okay, which is, is nice to know. And something else that I believe for me strengthened and reinforced the bond was the fact that I breastfed all my children. I thought it was a special time it was very relaxing time for me. I just was always aware that nature was providing the exact formula on time and that really that I was responding to my baby in a way that I couldn't have had had I not breastfed. Now, obviously, it's different for everyone and I'm not advocating for anybody, but for me, it was a special bonding experience and the reality is that that bonding experience was not just in the single children that I had and I had four of those before I had my twins so effectively I found that it was an equally good experience when I had my twin boys Uh, so I think that that was exceptional from the point of view it was almost like it was a continuity of what went on in the womb and the development of that bonding and this was the next piece of the bonding for me and look I, I, I think it was special so James I'm wondering is there anything in our history that would be useful to explore to maybe uh, further understand this yeah there's several examples of that we could look at to understand the bond particularly i think what would be interesting to understand is the bond in the sense that this bond is something well you know you'd often hear it's an unbreakable bond okay and particularly i think it would be interesting to look at the adoptions that took place in ireland in the 20th century because adoption rates 
for children that were born outside of marriage were incredibly high in Ireland in the 20th century. In fact, as far as I am aware, that in its peak year, which was 1967, that 94% of children born outside of marriage were given up for adoption. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this particular topic at the moment. There obviously has been for a long time and it continues to be a very controversial topic. But uh, there are people who claim that a lot of those adoptions were forced. And even if they weren't forced, that the environment, the social and political environment in the time uh, created a very hostile environment for unmarried mothers, for very vulnerable girls who really didn't understand their rights. And so they were kept willfully ignorant by the people in power, the people at large, by the church, by the state, in terms of their own rights, uh, down to the point that they weren't even told that even if they signed a contract that they had up until the point that the baby was about to be given away to change their mind. So things like that where, you know, some of it was certainly forced in terms of the baby was actually taken away. Some of it was coerced. Some of it was for forged. So clearly it's it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking what happened. But I think in terms of understanding that bond, that bond between the mother and child, I think it's an interesting thing to explore. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to explore. I mean, I can only speak from my own perspective and I know that it would literally have broke my heart if I had to give away one of my children. Mm. OK, and I believe if I had 12, it would be equally as difficult to give away one of them. Mm. So it obviously left a lasting impact Indeed, well, when you hear that, what you hear, the stories that you hear or what you read is that they, the babies were ripped out of their arms and left distraught. They they were, a lot of them suffered significantly psychologically and they had to, because of the, again, the social and political environment in Ireland at the time, they were, they were made to feel ashamed of themselves and to feel ext- extreme levels of guilt along with grief. And uh, they a lot of them, these women, even when they went on to have families in the future, some of them took it to the grave as far as I know. So yeah. they didn't, their families didn't even know. Is there any particular stories, though, that you have which you think are useful for shedding light on that bond? You know, that bond, yeah. that unbreakable, that seems to be something that's unbreakable and something that shapes and is exists and resides at the most fundamental aspects of who we are. Absolutely. I have a number of stories, to be honest. Uh, One that breaks my heart is um, I know there were two sisters in a nursing home and they both had illegitimate children and they were forced to um, hand them up for adoption. And like, obviously, I don't know what happened between that time and the time they came into the nursing home but I do know when they were in the nursing home they would never be without a doll rocking them in their arms both of them and they had to bring that baby to bed with them as they thought the baby the doll Mm. and that represented the the child that they never got to bring up and Mm. something in their psychic was still haunting them Mm. 
And I, I believe that that is such a tragedy. And it, at this stage, they were to some extent in uh, senile decay, which meant that it was almost they were going back to that traumatic experience that they could not get away from. So I would say that those two sisters carried the loss of their babies to their grave. It's pretty evident absolutely, that they did. Absolutely, but it, it just points to the fact, again, it points to the fact that this bond, it's like, look, how many of us have been in very close relationships with people? We've left that relationship. We've grieved that relationship. We've moved on from that relationship. It's not the same thing. You know, It's this is, uh, well, you know, you can imagine that a, a large part of it was probably because they were never allowed to grieve it properly anyway. So that those emotional scars were there and they were never really healed. So therefore, when they reverted or back to, you know, a childlike state, that these things came to the fore then, you know. Um, I mean, what happened to those women was, was, was horrendous. And I'm very glad that Ireland has changed in terms of we've moved far more. We've moved out of this patriarchal uh, structure that once dominated life and more to a more liberal society and that just doesn't happen now you know thank, thank i mean at least it, if it does happen it doesn't happen to the same extent that no. it, it happened back in it, the past it certainly do, doesn't and i think testament to the fact that we moved on i might tell you another story mm. uh, i know this uh, lady who she was in australia for a number of years and she had a baby there and at the time she had the baby most likely in the early 60s, I would imagine, uh, she felt that there was absolutely no way she could bring the baby home to her parents or indeed to the community, as it would be totally frowned upon and she'd be almost an outlaw. So she put up her baby for adoption. Obviously, she didn't want to, but she she did. So then she got married and she reared her family and that yearning to find the son that she didn't get the opportunity to rear was always there. So she just felt a force in her that made her go look for this child. <clears throat> and she found him. And she said the minute she saw the child, she met him. Well, he wasn't a child then. He was a man that when she saw him in the airport, she knew instantly mm-hmm that he was hers, mm. which is amazing again mm. and probably goes back to what you said, would you think, James? Well, absolutely, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. Like The point the point is, is that, of course, when she saw him, she didn't see the baby that she gave away. She saw a fully grown man, but yet she knew who, she, knew who he was. Mm. And so, I mean, it seems to me the logical explanation for that, of course, is because, as I've said, that at our most fundamental level of communication is through our bodies and through feeling. So she felt that that's who he was. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, we can mean felt in a very vague way, but I mean, literally, there was a bodily resonance, probably a positive self-experience that she had with him through their interactions in gestation and the the, the meagre amount of time she got to spend with her son when uh, when he was a, a newborn baby and those interactions left their mark in, on in her corporeal or bodily memory and they came back to the fore and actually it's 
very common it like you know you, you hear the phrase it's almost like i saw them yesterday like that that's something that's common in terms of how we have relationships with friends and it's 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 even more intense obviously in relationships we have at a very very you know at a very young age or if you're the mother child relationship so it makes complete sense but for me it seems to me what's happened there is it's a uh, it's that again goes back to that bodily resonance that accompaniment is the, is a, a, another term that's used but that in through the interactions we have that that is something that sediments and becomes part of our bodily memory and therefore when she saw him of course she, she knew. knew that yeah. was her that was son. it but it's also the, yeah. the, it also it's significant it signifies that incredible bond yeah. that's there as well yeah and even she put it instantly i knew which mm. was which was lovely, I thought it was lovely. But the great part of that story was 30 years on when her dad was well in his 80s, she was able to bring that child home to a rural village, to that man at that point, right? Mm. And there was a huge celebration because it was almost the son that was lost was, was found. Mm. And I just think that's significant how we had moved on in the 30 years well do you know and that's beautiful because we've obviously talked about something that's quite morbid mm. and horrible and horrible in it horrible in the sense in the way we treated irish women and unmarried mothers and very vulnerable girls like just heartbreaking but at least what we see is that spirit and that community spirit in Ireland as well. That spirit where, they, you know, <laughs> he's one of our own, sure. We couldn't, we have to celebrate that. And that to me is beautiful, you know. Yeah, so. and for me it is as well. But it just shows how the Irish psyche had changed. But I believe that no mother would have forced her child into one of those mother and baby homes. Only that the authorities were saying this cannot happen. Yeah, but it, yeah, of course it was. So look, it's very often presented as a top-down thing, but it wasn't. It was a societal thing. It was a societal thing. People knew this was happening, and people let it happen. It was people. We were. I'm not saying everybody was, but a lot of people were complicit in this and understood what was going on. But also because people were were fearful, they were afraid of the repercussions for them and for their families and for different things that happened. So, you know, it was heartbreaking what happened. And um, but I, I do think that stories like that, you know, this man coming home 30 years, he had never been to Ireland, I'm assuming. No, no? never been to Ireland uh, until his mum went over and found him mm. and brought him home. And it, the, there was such a big celebration. But I think, look, it's what really it reinforces that. Ireland had changed dramatically in 30 years. That's mm. really what it forces. Okay. But then as well, it's almost like the prodigal son was lost and is now found. Mm. And now we can claim him as one of our mm. own. Except this prodigal son didn't do anything wrong. No, so. of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a sinner. Like he, he was just a poor, unfortunate baby. Uh, you know, well, maybe not. So well, he had a great life. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the yeah. consolation for his mother. That he had a great life. Mm, yeah. Indeed. But there was part of her missing until she found that son. That's the bottom line. Absolutely. When yeah. that comes back again yeah. to the bond. Yeah. I'm just wondering then, you know, we, we've looked at the bond being, it's not, it's definitely not shattered, but the bond being... Severed? No, it's because, it, well, does the bond sever? That's the point, I think, well, we're seeing that it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't sever. Yeah, it doesn't. So... 
it well we've seen like the grief that set that the separation of a mother from her child causes at at at, at this early point. Obviously, it'd be interesting to explore that at a later point as well. And I think immigration in Ireland is obviously uh, is an is an interesting place to look because effectively Ireland had a population of eight million people prior to the famine. After that, there was obviously mass debt and there was mass immigration out of the country but that immigration didn't just stop there we didn't people the figure that's often cited is one million people died and one million people emigrated so that would say the population of six million left but ireland's population today we're, we're not even we're we're just coming up to five million people we've only recovered to five coming up to five million people for well at least for the republic of ireland it's probably about six million people for the entire island all right but the the population significantly decreased over that period, and that's oh, that's to do with many different factors. It's it's to do with the economic hardship that Ireland was left with as a result of being part of the United Kingdom, uh, that Ireland was sucked dry of resources and resources that weren't put back into the economy. But also, Ireland as an infant state in the early part of the twentieth century, and an infant state that had no resources whatsoever will actually, in part, give rise to this theocracy that existed in Ireland in the 20th century because the state was reliant on the services of the church and therefore the church had a lot of power in terms of dictating what happened in the state. So basically, that that's a part of the reason why the Catholic Church had such dominance in Ireland in, in the 20th century. That's part of the reason why the Catholic Church dictated life to the extent it did. So that was a consequence of that. But the population, as a result of being such an economically deprived country, there was there was massive, massive immigration out, out of Ireland, starting in the mid eighteen, the mid eighteen, the mid nineteenth century, throughout the twentieth century, up until what probably the last thirty or odd years or so. We, we, what we've seen in Ireland, and part of again, it's part of the Irish story is immigration, and I mean, it's created this fantastic Irish diaspora around the world, seventy odd million of us, if not more, and that's the, that's the upshot of it. But it clearly caused a lot of heartbreak. The thing about the difference between now is we've got we're amazingly connected to one another. The world is a very small place. <clears throat> You can be in Australia in 24 hours if you want to. So you, if you really need to get somewhere, you can get there. And times were very different back in, particularly from, the, you know, from the 1850s up till the 1920s. And people, the only way of communication really was through letters. So if you look at some of these accounts of immigration, particularly from people who spent time in the west of Ireland, where it was particularly, where immigration was particularly high, you see levels of grief in the mothers of their children who were immigrating that you could probably only compare to death. Yeah, I think that is a fair statement. I mean, we had the American wakes, which in many ways signified that most likely we won't see them again. Mm. But there's an old Irish saying, and it says something like this, uh, that it's better for them to be on the sea, as in emigrating, uh, rather than being under the clay. No, 
Yeah. Better to be on the seed than under the clay. Yeah. I'd never heard that one before. Well, th- that's it's it's uh, very similar to that anyway, which effectively meant they had to take the risk. At least there was a hope of life mm. for them if if they went. Whereas the chances are, particularly during the famine times, if they stayed, oh, they yeah. most likely would um, would die. Yeah. Or certainly they had to probably look at how many can we realistically oh, keep? Yeah. So if if they had the the passage to go, th- that was it was it was probably a no choice really. Oh no, it was of course it was created out of economic necessity. Yeah. You know, there's just some first person accounts, and it it's pointed out that by many observers that the mother was always the loneliest at the American wakes, and even one story here where. Uh, the mother had never seen a train before when she was bringing her daughter to the train station and the train came into the station blowing its horn and the woman cursing it said bad luck to you you're taking me daughter away from me when saying goodbye would start the mother would put her arms around her neck and sometimes hold on until somebody would only take her away another woman on the Blasket Islands uh, named Mimi O'Shea when her daughter was leaving for America she explained movingly to Mike Pegg her sorrow at her daughter's departure and it was the first time that she said that the island became dark around me so you know you hear things like that and how heartbreaking it was for them it clearly was like a death so it's another it's just another example of how traumatic that separation was for those women who were very often forced to give up their children in 20th century Ireland and for these women from the latter part of the 19th century and early 20th century who had to who had to give up their children in another way. One situation was created by the economic hardship that Ireland faced in the latter part of, I mean, not the latter part, the pretty much for the entirety of its history up until recently. And the other was created by the social and political institutions that existed within the country. So uh, these women were very much uh, at the hands and mercy of of the environments and society and times they found themselves in. But that bond really is the thing that shines true because of the effect that it had on them. Would you agree? Absolutely. It definitely does. And a quote from Pori Pierce has come to mind. He said, Lord, thou art hard on mothers. They suffer in our coming and our going. Mm. And, you know, basically that's exactly what mothers do. They suffer in their coming and their going, right? But I think particularly in their going. <laughs> Absolutely. Because the coming, to some extent, is a joyous occasion. And once you see the baby, you forget about the pain you endured. That's mm. the simple facts. Isn't that an amazing thing? Yeah, it is. But obviously, when they're departing with you, from you, when they're departing from you, that's a, a whole different thing. Mm. Absolutely. Devastation, basically. Devastation, yeah. But I think it is a bit different today, though, isn't it? Oh, of course it is. I mean, the reality, as you say, we're so connected. We're so connected now. And the fact that you can hear and see uh, the person, even if it's via Zoom or whatever mechanism you see and hear them through, well, look, you're reassured that that person is comfortable, doing well and... And um, that's a great consolation. And obviously you want the child to fulfill their their destiny. But in 
those situations, it was just, I think fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all as well. Mm. And sometimes they were waiting for that letter to come for weeks. And sometimes that letter never came. That's the sad reality. Mm. So it was nothing, only hardship. Hardship. Hardship at its best. Absolutely. God loved them. Or at its worst, whichever way you'd say I it. I know, I know. So sad. I wonder then, you know, I think we're, I think we're at the end pretty much now. So have you any concluding thoughts, Sheila? So look, what I'd like to say in conclusion, I think that this was a really worthwhile um, conversation. First of all, I learned so much, particularly about the body schema, which I think is fascinating and which gives me a greater insight into into the fact that that bond is so strong. This bond between a mother and her child is so strong. And it's almost like nature provides that bond Mm. in order to make sure that we care for the next generation. So I believe that I was very privileged. I had five pregnancies which resulted in six children. I thoroughly enjoyed being a mother. I um, enjoyed... Uh, the birth and I also enjoyed particularly the breastfeeding because I think that was a really special bonding time as well. So I was lucky to be born when I was born. So and if I look at my own mother, I she had nine children and again, you know, she lost no children. So again, that was an immense privilege. And when I look at my mother, I often say I wouldn't hold a candle to her. So that's it. I'd say it hold a candle to her indeed she was a great woman and so are you so anyway for once I'm going to finish off with a poem is that correct oh that's lovely James I'd, yeah. I'd love to I'm taking hear an, you making an executive decision <laughs> we'll do the reverse roles <clears throat> reverse roles indeed so this blessing it's a blessing from John O'Donoghue John O'Donoghue of course was I've mentioned him many times before he's a Irish poet and philosopher and just a beautiful writer so I think this is a beautiful little blessing to finish this episode off on. The blessing is titled, For a Mother to Be. Nothing could have prepared your heart to open like this. From beyond the skies and the stars, this echo arrived inside of you and started to pulse with life, each beat a tiny act of growth, traversing all our ancient shapes on its way home to itself. Once it began, you were no longer your own, a new, more courageous you offering itself, in a new way to a presence you can sense, but you have not seen or known. It has made you feel alone in a way you never knew before. Everyone else sees only from the outside what you feel and feed with every fibre of your being. Never have you travelled further inward, where words and thoughts became half-light, unable to reach the fund of brightness, strengthening inside the night of your womb. Like some primeval moon, your soul brightens, the tides of essence that flow to your child. You know your life has changed forever, for in all the days and years to come, distance will never be able to cut you off from the one you now carry. For nine months under your heart, May you be blessed with quiet confidence that destiny will guide you and mind you. May the emerging spirit of your child imbibe encouragement and joy 
from the continuous music of your heart, so that it can grow with ease, expectant of wonder and welcome, when its form is fully filled, and it makes its journey out to see you and settle at last, relieved and glad in your arms. Thanks, Sheila. Thanks, James. That was just amazing. It was a beautiful way to finish it. I, I just loved every word of it. He's amazing insights altogether. Indeed, it's amazing yeah. how, how one man can be so wise. Hi, folks. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. All the best. Bye.